Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. It's the amazing Rico Bronia podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. Every day is a new freaking injury. We'll talk about that. Plus some fun stuff on today's Rico Bronia. Evan Roberts, Pete Hoffman. I remember the early days of spring training. There were no injuries. Everything was great. Everybody was healthy. Everybody was getting along just fine. And now the Mets have joined the Yankees on this pace of an injury concern a day, sometimes two injury concerns a day. From Sunday, Starling Marte got drilled in the head. That was a scary sight to behold. And it seems okay. Uh, He's not showing any symptoms of a concussion He will certainly be tested over the next couple of days, but it's a scary sight, especially after last year where the Mets seemed to get drilled every 35 seconds. And Starling Marte is so important to this team. He battled through injuries last year. Sometimes he was able to play through them. Sometimes, as we saw, he missed some time. And I guess there's this fear with Marte as he gets a little bit older. Is he going to be able to be, is he going to be able to stay healthy? for 130, 140 games, especially coming off of the surgeries he had during the offseason. He returns to the lineup a couple of days ago. He looks great at the plate, misses nothing at the plate, and instantly gets drilled in the head. So we have Starling Marte concerns after a fastball knocks him in the noggin. We've got Brooks Raleigh pulling himself out of the World Baseball Classic with a hamstring issue. When I heard the rally, the Raleigh hamstring issue, my first assumption was, all right, he ain't going to be ready for opening day. And now all of a sudden the Mets, who don't have a lot of lefties in their bullpen, are they actually going to be forced to take TJ McFarlane north? Every time I watch TJ McFarlane in spring training, he's getting his ass kicked. I know Buck likes him, but that's not going to be enough to make the team. If you suck, I don't care if you're a lefty, you shouldn't make the team. We had to sit through garbage lefties last year. I mean, Joely Rodriguez for a full year. But 
the report on Brooks Raleigh doesn't sound that bad. Buck Showalter made it seem as if they're going to be very conservative with the hamstring. They saw the imaging. They're going to be careful because any kind of setback would lead him not be to be ready for opening day, but that there is some hope he could be ready for the start of this season in Miami in less than three weeks. So I was sort of surprised by that. Obviously doesn't mean anything because just because they say they're optimistic, he's going to be ready for the start of the season. Doesn't mean he's going to be ready for the start of the season. And before anybody gets crazy, him getting injured while getting ready for the world baseball classic is not an injury that we can blame on the world baseball classic. I know we like to do that. And that's a fun hobby of ours. Met fans, Yankee fans, all baseball fans. The guy got hurt wearing that Team USA jersey. Blame the WBC. It is not a WBC issue. Guy didn't even pitch in a game in the World Baseball Classic. And if he was going to injure his hamstring, he was probably going to do it in Port St. Lucie or Arizona. So hopefully Brooks Raleigh is going to be okay. Then we got the Kodai Senga scratch. I'm looking forward to a little Saturday night Senga action. I wasn't going to score the game. I didn't score the game, but I did have a thought for a second. Yeah, this could be fun. Let's uh, score a Kodai Senga start, his second one, after he made that debut a week earlier against the Cardinals. And a few hours before first pitch, he scratched with tendinitis at the base of his index finger. What the hell is that? Again, doesn't sound major. Senga says he could pitch through it. So the expectation and the hope, is that Kodai Sang is going to be ready for the start of the season. <laughs> I don't know what to think, man. I mean, you get these reports, and you want to believe in the good. Like, who wants to go into opening day believing all these guys are going to be on the injured list? But we're Met fans, and we've seen this before. You know, we've heard about injuries, many an injury before, that doesn't seem major and turns out to be bad. Now, in fairness, there have also been plenty of injuries that aren't major, and they turn out not to be major. I don't want to ignore the existence of the minor injury, but Sanga's got this finger tendonitis issue. You can always look at it and say it could be worse. It's not shoulder discomfort. It's not elbow discomfort. But when you're a starting pitcher getting ready for the start of the season, any kind of setback could affect you from being ready for the start of the season because you're on this timetable of working your strength up, working your amount of pitches you can throw in a game up. And so you miss a start, you miss two starts, you stop throwing for a week, it changes everything. But it does sound like, okay, things will be decent with Kodai Senga. So that was injury number three. Let me see if there's any more injuries I'm forgetting. Is there any other injuries I'm forgetting, uh, Peter? Have I nailed all of them over the last few days? Well, one that you uh, he's returned from injury, but he hasn't performed well at all. Darren Ruff, his arthritis issue. Oh, God. God, Darren Ruff. <laughs> if, if the Mets don't just put him on the injured list, and that's why I don't mind if he's hurt, because it's like an easy way to not release him because otherwise they're going to have to release him. They're going to have to just eat the money and say, get the hell out of here. You stick a guy on the injured list. You always have that possibility of bringing that guy back from mothballs, depending on what happens, you know, which is still a possibility because Darren Ruff, I think is over 10. I think that's where he is right now. Uh, I know he doesn't have a hit that I know for sure. And you know, what saves Darren Ruff, uh, he's actually 0 for 8 with five strikeouts. <laughs> I mean, I, 
I shouldn't laugh. He's 0 for 8 with five strikeouts. And Pete, that doesn't include the games against World Baseball Classic teams because that doesn't even count in spring training standings. So if you include those games, I'm going to guess it's like 0 for 11, 0 for 12. And what they could easily do is just stick him on the injured list and say, ah, you know why he's struggling? He's struggling because he still has that. What's the injury again? A wrist issue? The cortisone shot in the wrist? He's got the arthritis, and he's not really sure. The, the, the interview from, I think it was sat Friday night or Saturday, was, was just pathetic. We are just like, hey, you know, how do you feel you're going to deal with this? He's like, I, I don't know. I don't know. It's like, <laughs> oh, God, I can't wait to get your ass off this team. And there was another injury, too. Uh, Bryce Montes de Oca. Yes, yes. I want to get to that one, Pete, because – Bryce Montes de Oca, until he had his issues on Sunday where he walked a bunch of guys, and clearly he wasn't the same. His fastball was down a couple of notches. Mets were concerned. They take him out. He's got discomfort. He was one of those guys that was making an impression of potentially making this team. He's got a fastball with a ton of bite on it. He was getting tons of swings and misses, and we saw him briefly last year when he was called up, and even looking at his minor league numbers, His issue is always just throwing strikes. If the guy could throw strikes, he could be nasty. He could be devastating. And he's got this just really difficult to hit fastball. So to see this happen to him now just sucks. Again, you always look for good news. The good news is that it sounds like, and again, this is a common theme in Mets spring training. They're not overly concerned about Montes de Oca. But still, it's, you know, anytime you hear something with a shoulder or an elbow or your arm, it's a problem when you're a pitcher. You know, when it's an oblique, when it's a hip, it sucks. It can knock you out for a long period of time, but it's not one of those things that could turn into Tommy John surgery uh, or elbow or forearm surgery that can knock you out and really derail your career. So hopefully everything's okay with Montes de Oca because he was looking like a guy that was making a bid to make this team. So now you just have to cross your fingers because we already know Quintana's going to be out for a while. That's obvious. Uh, we already know Montes de Oca's bid to make this team has been derailed because he's not going to make this team. He has a chance to still have an impact on this bullpen this year, but he's not making the team. The starting pitching depth is being tested if Kodai Senga is not ready right out of the gate, despite the Mets' optimism, because, again, the Mets have no off days that first week of the year. So usually you can hide with a four-man rotation right out the gate. You could do that sometimes for the first month of the season. You could do that for a while because you have off days, you have rainouts. The Mets aren't going to have that. So Kodai Senga, if he does miss any kind of time, that's an issue. So we're already starting to see this depth being tested. And the thing about Starling Marte, even if he comes out of this drilled in the head moment, okay, and I think he will, the Mets do not have outfield depth. And it leads to something I do want to discuss today. We'll also get to Buck Showalter, who had an interesting interview with Adam Jones a few days ago in which he was revealing all of Buck's ideas. Buck has a lot of baseball ideas. We'll discuss that, plus Brandon Nimmo's keys to being healthy. But If the Mets decide to not have Ruff on this roster, which I have remained confident they won't, whether it's IL, whether it's biting the bully and releasing him, the Mets are having two young players have really good spring trainings that create an interesting issue. 
and that is Mark Vientos and Brett Beatty. I leave Ronnie Mauricio out, and Mauricio had another home run on Sunday. It was a bomb because he's not making the team. You know, we could try to make reasons or cases for him to make the team. He's not going to make the team. He's going to start the year at AAA, and we're going to hope that Mauricio picks up where he's left off from spring training and the Dominican winter ball. The two guys who have a chance to make this team are Brett Beatty and Mark Vientos. And so far, here's what we've seen in the 30-so at-bats that each guy's had. And this, again, doesn't include the WBC games because they don't count in exhibition stats. But Mark Vientos is hitting 333 with a 959 OPS and a couple of home runs and nine RBIs. Brett Beatty, on the other hand, in 24 at-bats, is hitting 458 with an 1177 OPS with one home run and five RBIs. Both guys are hitting the crap out of the ball. Both guys are not going to confuse you with a gold glover. They're not. You know, I've seen Vientos play first and third. We've seen Beatty play third. And Beatty's had some good defensive moments. I don't want to say he's always a butcher over there. He's not. But neither guy is a world-class defender. But what both guys are doing right now is they are making their case for making this roster over Darren Ruff. But here's the problem. And this is where we got to talk about fit. If you go Beatty, who's had a better camp than Vientos, he's been unbelievable. How do you make it work against lefties? What's the plan against lefties? Because with Vientos, it's pretty simple. Vientos is going to be your DH against left-handed pitching. That's it. Like, that's that's his gig. You want to play him a little bit at third base and first base? I guess. I don't think he will. I don't think he's going to need to. Because between Escobar and Guillaume, I don't think Vientos is going to be asked to play third base. I don't see that happening. Between Alonzo and Vogelbach, I don't think he's going to be asked to play first base. So he's a right-handed DH. Here's Brett Beatty's issue. Against right-handed pitching, you play him. And it's not that complicated. He could even be your third baseman against right-handed pitching. Or he's your third baseman with Escobar playing second and McNeil playing the outfield. Or however you want to align that. Beatty has not played the outfield much in spring training. I don't think I've seen an inning of him in the outfield. So I assume that if Beatty is playing a position, it's going to be third base. But no harm, no foul, because Jeff McNeil could play the outfield. Eduardo Escobar could even play the outfield. We saw the Mets do that once because Venezuela was planning on potentially playing him in the outfield. So against righties, it's easy, and it's great. makes perfect sense. But what are you doing against lefties? Beatty has not hit left-handed pitching throughout his minor league career, or at least enough to where the Mets are going to give him that opportunity to face left-handed pitching right out of the gate. So if you accept that, what's the plan against lefties? Because one option I've always heard, and I've even suggested, is Eduardo Escobar could find himself as the right-handed platoon for Vogelbach. Okay, let's just say that's the plan. Forget Tommy Pham for a second, because Tommy Pham's a fourth outfielder. Do you really want him to be the right-handed platoon against left-handed pitching? So Escobar is your DH against the lefty. Okay, who's playing third? Do you play Guillerme and say, screw it, we're just going for defense? Do you defy what I said earlier and say Beatty should just play every single day, even against lefties? What's the plan? And that's where things get complicated, and that's where Vientos really has the edge on Beatty, despite the fact that Brett Beatty is doing everything he can to make this roster. He is 
just punishing the baseball, and he is having some good defensive moments. And the one thing we do have to remind ourselves when we go crazy about the defense, Eduardo Escobar is not confusing us with Scott Rowland and his prime defensively. Like, he's okay defensively, but he's not freaking Brooks Robinson. So why do we have to hold Brett Beatty to the standard of Brooks Robinson when Eduardo Escobar isn't that guy? But those are the two young guys who have a legitimate shot to make this team and the oddities on how you make each guy fit. Vientos has the edge because he's the better fit. Well, I, first of all, back to your defensive stuff with with Escobar. Uh, th- that's one thing I said about last year. Escobar was was not really we, – we criticized Beatty. And, again, it was a little raw. But Escobar was terrible last year. He really was. And he's not, he's not doing anything to impress us so far in spring training either. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Uh, you know what? You've made some really great cases for both Vientos and Beatty, but the reality is, is I, I think you're still going to probably find LeCastro to be the guy that's going to make the team over both of them. All right, so I'm glad you I'm glad you brought that up because he's in this mix. Now, he's in this mix for very different reasons because I like Tim LeCastro, and I mentioned when we were doing our roster predictions a few Ricos ago, I want him to make the team. I think there's a value to Tim LeCastro today, maybe more so today, than there would have been a year or two ago. And the LeCastro's credit, let's give his numbers, 27 at-bats, He's hitting 370, uh, and he has five stolen bases. That's the stat we really need to mention. Five stolen bases. I don't think there's anybody on the Mets with more than one at this point in spring training, and he has a 1,025 OPS, and he's great defensively. He definitely gives you a plus defensive glove. He makes the he makes sense to make this team, but again, it leads to the question of what's the plan at DH against left-handed pitching? Because the Castro would make this team over rough. He would make it over Beatty. He'd make it over Vientos. Do you play LeCastro in the outfield against the lefty? And that's a day where, let's say, Marte DHs or Nimo DHs or even Canna DHs. It's not crazy. You're not facing lefties five times a week. You're not. 
you know, we'd have to go through the schedule to see how often you're matched up against lefties over the first couple of weeks of the season. But usually on average, it's once or twice a week. So one kind of thought would be, well, I'm going to use that to improve my defense in the outfield and give somebody kind of the half an off day, which is the ideal way to use your DH. You know, one of the problems of getting stuck into like a Vogelback rough platoon is you lose opportunities to give your regulars a DH day. So one argument you can make is, well, make sure that when you face a lefty, that's your DH day. Uh, and it gives LeCastro a chance to play once or twice a week. But if LeCastro makes the team, Pete, and we've gone through it, unless they're carrying fewer pitchers, that means no Vientos, that means no Beatty, and it leads to the question of, against a tough lefty, are you cool with the idea of, well, Tommy Pham's going to do it, or LeCastro's going to play the outfield, and that's Starling Marte's DH day, because that's kind of the side effect of Tim LeCastro making the team. I really hate the idea of Tommy Pham playing a DH. I, I hate that. I mean, whatever. I, I, Tommy Pham is whatever. He's blocked me right now. He's a fourth outfielder at best, but he's a professional player, I guess, so we have him. But it's weird. Like, I, I really hate the way the Mets are positioning this DH. Like, I don't mind having that flexibility where you can rotate guys, but it really is hurting the lineup when you're facing a left-handed pitcher because there is no – even if you have Marte or Alonzo as the DH that day, you're still taken away from a different spot. You know, that's really what it comes down to. Well, they, they were not a great offensive team against left-handed pitching last year, and it doesn't feel as if it's going to be much different. And I think that's the concern, you know, unless Vientos makes the team and he crushes lefties. I mean, that, that's a game changer. And I, and I definitely think that's a, on the board, if not the likeliest scenario, assuming Darren Ruff is DFA'd or starts the year on the IL, that they go with Vientos and say, let's score runs. Now, you mentioned Tommy Pham. So I'm mixed about something. I, I do not want to go crazy about spring training numbers from a 35-year-old veteran. Because at the end of the day, that guy is probably just getting ready for the start of the season. Tommy Pham is being paid $6 million guaranteed this year. He's got a couple of million dollars in incentives. The Mets are not going to cut him based on a bad spring training. I, I get that Steve Cohen has a ton of money, and he had no problem getting rid of Robinson Cano, but they're not based on a 45 at-bat sample size going to release Tommy Pham. I bring this up because... I know that thought is jumping into some Met fans' minds. You know, we're having this discussion about, well, Castro's hitting 360 and he's great defensively, but we want him on the roster, but we want Vientos on the roster. Hey, wouldn't it just be simple to have Tim LeCastro be your fourth outfielder and Tommy Pham hits the road? In theory, it would, but Tommy Pham's making $6 million a year. The only argument you can make against Pham and making any kind of point towards how much he's struggling in camp is that he had a crappy year last year, and he did. And that's the point I made about Darren Ruff on the last Rico, that what makes it difficult for him to make the team is not just a bad spring training, but a bad spring training following an awful stretch with the New York Mets. You're not talking about just an 0 for 8 with five strikeouts. No Mets fans talking about that We're in its own. We're talking about that with how bad he was after the trade. In Tommy Pham's case last year, the guy had a 680 OPS. He sucked. 
The Mets signed him as a fourth outfielder. Okay, fine. He is now having this brutal spring training. And here's Timmy LaCastro hitting 370, flashing leather, stealing bases. Tommy Pham, is he stealing bases this year? Still late bases last year. No, he's not the guy he was in 2017 when he stole 25 bases. So I guess I'm just having a, a psychiatrist meeting here where I kind of don't want Tommy Pham on the roster, but I also know it would be stupid to just release the guy off of spring training. So I'm just kind of going through the motions there with Tommy Pham right now. Yeah, well, and also you got to remember, too, like they're, they do have an analytical department. They have scouts and whatnot, and there's a reason why they signed him to $6 million for one year because they think he's going to do something this season. No matter how bad of a season he he had last year, they brought him here for a reason. So it doesn't make a difference. What Same thing with Ruff. I keep on telling you, they're not DFAing him. I, I know people think they will. He's going to be on this roster. He might be on the IL to start the season, but he's going to be around for a little bit because they brought him in with a purpose. No matter how bad he performed last year, they brought him in with a purpose, and they still think he's he's useful. Yeah, I disagree. Ruff's not going to be on the team. Now, the IL thing is our way of kicking the can down the road because we're both sort of right if Darren Ruff's on the IL. He's not on the active 26-man roster, so I'm right. But he hasn't been DFA'd, so you're right. So I guess we just kick it down the road. But guess what? If Darren Ruff starts the year on the IL because this wrist thing continues to bother him and Mark Vientos gets off to a massive start, let's say he makes the team, Darren Ruff's dead. If if Vientos makes the team and then goes out and crushes left-handed pitching, I'm sorry. Darren Ruff's not going to find his way on the roster. Uh, One argument for LeCastro, and I read this stat the other day, Uh, Ryan Spader tweeted it out and I give Ryan Spader credit because he's the same guy who I ripped to shreds for a tweet he had about the pitch clock something stupid that he said about the pitch clock nothing you said Pete you you've always been fair with your dumb critiques Spader lied about something but I want to give him credit now he's now Spader fired off a really fascinating tweet about stolen base percentages that's worthy of discussion obviously bigger bases we know obviously the pickoff rule we know Right now in spring training, guys are stealing bases at an 81.41% clip. To put that in perspective, so you know is that good, last year in Major League Baseball, the MLB average was 75.41%. That is a 6% increase. That's a massive number. may not sound like it, but to go from 75 to 81% success rate, that's big. And you're probably also running more. So not only is the rate higher, but guys are running. They're running a lot more. Also, to put that in perspective, Ricky Henderson, the greatest stolen base artist in the history of the sport, he stole bases at an 80.76% clip. So right now, guys are stealing bases in spring training at a higher percentage than the greatest stolen base artist in the history of baseball. Is that going to remain the number throughout the regular season? I can't tell you if it will. I think there's a greater chance that they will pay more attention to guys trying to steal bases. There'll be more pitch outs during the regular season, no doubt. So I don't know if that number is necessarily going to stay at 81%, but the one thing we're seeing is that stolen bases are becoming a bigger part of this game. And you look at this Met roster and you ask yourself, okay, Who are the guys that are candidates to steal more bases? 
And all you got to do is go back to last year and see, well, who stole bases last year? Last year, the guy who led the Mets in stolen bases was Starling Marte. He stole 18 bases, which is not a huge number. The guy who was number two, Francisco Lindor, he stole 16 bases. Okay, so I don't think anyone's surprised that Marte and Lindor were the two leaders last year. Not a very high number, 18 and 16. Pete, I'm going to ask you a trivia question. After Marte and Lindor, who were the two leaders in stolen bases for the Mets last year, my first part of the trivia question is, who was third? And then also, what was the number? If the leader was 18 and the guy in second was 16, what's the number of the guy who had the third most stolen bases on the New York Mets, and what's his name? Go ahead. I'm, I'm taking a wild guess here, and I think I'm going to be off, but I'm going to give it a shot. Terrence Gore, and I'm going to say six. <laughs> That's a good one. So Terrence Gore stole three bases, <laughs> which is not that far off. It's Pete Alonzo. And the answer is five. Think about that. And after that, you got Jeff McNeil with four, Mark Canna, Brandon Nimmo, James McCann, Travis Jankowski, and Terrence Gore with three. So I I don't think the Mets have, besides Marte and Lindor, and Marte I worry about because he's getting older. And even with guys being more successful stealing bases, I'm not sure his number is going to balloon up like it used to. Marte used to be a big-time stolen base guy. There's a guy that stole 47 bases in a season a couple of times. So he, And by the way, it didn't happen that long ago. He actually stole 47 bases in 2021. 2022, he goes down to 18, and he played the same amount of games. So I think we are seeing, based on his age, 34 years old, a guy who's just not going to run as much. So even with the bigger bases and even with guys you know, running more, I'm not sure that's going to continue with Marte. Does it with Lindor? Does it jump up with Lindor? I think it will. I think it'll jump up with Brandon Nemo a little bit. He's actively said, hey, I want to steal more bases. But there really aren't a lot of guys on this team that are great candidates to take advantage of this. It's not. Just, just look at the roster. That's the value of Tim LaCastro. And I guess what I wrestle with is, okay, well, how often is that weapon going to be used? If Tim LeCastro makes the team, and he's not starting a lot, because he probably won't, despite what I recommended earlier of, oh, if he makes the team, he could start once a week in the outfield, and then one of the outfielders can DH. I'm not sure that'll even happen. Like, they'll probably start Tommy Pham in the outfield over Tim LeCastro. So Tim's value is late in games. His value is late inning defense, and his value is speed. So you got to ask yourself, where is he going to be used? So what jumps out at me is Daniel Vogelback. Daniel Vogelback is on base late in the game. Hello, Tim LaCastro. Maybe early in the season to keep Marte healthy? Starling Marte comes out for defense. Not that he's bad defensively, but you're trying to keep the guy healthy. He's 34 years old. Does he come in late for Mark Canna for defense? Is he a candidate to just pinch run for basically anybody? I mean, since this team doesn't have a lot of stolen base guys, maybe Tim LeCastro's pinch running for Pete Alonso in a big spot. And will that usage of LeCastro in a lot of ways be even more valuable than a right-handed DH who's only starting twice a week? Because that role LeCastro fills is every day. Every single close game they play, 
you can make an argument, get his ass on first base so he can steal second for a team that doesn't have a lot of guys who are going to steal bases. So maybe in this new world of stolen bases, Tim LaCastro's value is even higher than it would have been if we were having this discussion one or two years ago. Well, I made the joke about Terrence Gore being the, the third on the list, but the, the reality was he did make an impact. Like, I mean, they put him in that, that spot. Yep. He played for, I don't remember, what, he played like 10 games for the Mets. He didn't play much. But that's the point. If you could have someone like that all season long, I love that idea. First of all, we know that Vogelbach runs like a, like he's got bricks in his butt. You know, I don't care how much weight <laughs> he lost, he's not going to steal a, a single base unless, like, somehow, like, there's a, a pass ball. I think that's a necessity. I think you do need that type of guy. And you're right, the defensive stuff. Listen, Marte, I love Sterling Marte, but the injuries are definitely a concern. It's an impact. He he makes a difference in the right field. Like I, I when I, we got him, I was like, oh, center fielder, no doubt. But being in right field, he does just fill up that that side of the, of the uh, outfield. It would take Lacastro is a step down defensively, in my opinion. Seeing Marte out there, he has this impact. He t- he takes up a lot of space just for his his look, his body, his build. Lacastro can cover more ground, but I don't know. I, I I feel it will hurt. But on the other hand, you need to give him some rest. So I do understand. I don't that. know. I don't. I, I don't want to say you're wrong about this because I'd have to watch, and we'd all have to watch a lot more of Lacastro for me to say this but I'm not sure he's a step down defensively Um, as great as Marte is in right field. If anything, they would just be equal different kind of players, but equal. Like you're not losing that much defensively by LaCastro playing the outfield, but you got to be smart. You got to keep these guys healthy. It's only a kick, a jump, a block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle, a run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. And, you know, one of the guys who spoiled us last year was Brandon Nimmo. Brandon Nimmo played 151 games last year. And what was so stunning about it was that a year earlier, he played 92 Two years earlier, because we can't look at 2020, he played 69 games. He only had one other year in his career, 2018, when he played 140 games. So in the back of your mind, you worry, okay, Nimmo was great last year, and he was healthy last year, but could he do it again? And one thing that jumped out at me early in spring training was, Brendan Nimmo's not playing. Where the hell is he? And I would Google news every day or so, Brandon Nimmo injury, just am I missing something? Like, does Nimmo have a sore ass, like a sore hamstring, like a, a nasal infection? Like, what the hell is going on? And I'm reading the other day, and again, I think it was a great work by Tim Britton, I think, wrote it, if I'm not mistaken, that Brandon Nimmo had a formula he found last year 
that helped him stay on the field. He was using data from this thing called catapult fitness trackers, and it reshaped his workout before and after games and in spring training. Apparently, Nimmo used to just work out too much. (laughs) He used to shag too many fly balls. He used to just tax himself so much that that may may have, because I don't think you ever know for sure, may have contributed to the injuries. The other thing that may have caused this late start to spring training is what happened one year ago. One year ago, we had a lockout. And so spring training was very, very condensed. And so Brandon Nimmo, like everyone else, played far fewer spring training games. And Nimmo looks back at that and says, hey, that that worked because it did. He played 151 games. So it's fascinating, and I love it. I mean, I think it's great because it's going to be really, really important to this team that Brandon Nimmo stays on the field. He's one of the engines of this offense. You could argue he is the engine of this offense because how often he gets on base and he comes back, he plays his first game, I think it was Saturday, walks the first two times up. Like, not, like never missed a beat. Boom, two walks, he's good to go. And that's the beauty in Nimmo. When Brandon Nimmo isn't hitting, and he'll go through stretches where he's not, he's still getting on base. He's still finding a way to get on base. And I was looking back at my scorecard from opening day 2021. That game the Mets played in Philadelphia, they actually blew that game. DeGrom pitched six scoreless innings, Mets lost. And I was looking at the lineup, and it cracked me up. Opening day, 2021, Brandon Nimmo was playing, but he was not leading off. He was batting ninth, and Kevin Pillar was leading off. And I I used to think it too. I used to think, boy, Brandon Nimmo is so perfect in the ninth hole. I must have said that a million times. I'm also a sucker for the second leadoff spot. I like having a guy batting ninth who gets on base. But Brandon Nimmo is far better than that. And it it took me a while to accept it. (laughs) It took me a while to finally admit it. And certainly 2021, having a 400 on base percentage certainly helped. But he had done that before. That's the crazy part. It's not like Brandon Nimmo woke up and had a 400 on base percentage for the first time. In fact, last year, I think he had one of the lowest on base percentages of his career. Last year. It was 376, so it was pretty good. I mean, I'm not complaining about it by any stretch. But, yeah, I mean, Brandon Nimmo has kind of proven that he has to be a leadoff hitter. He's got to lead off all the time. Um are you confident now that Nimmo can play 150 games again or because of what he did last year, or is this workout regimen going to make you believe it too? So I listened to him talk. I believe it was today, his comments uh, with Buck Showalter and uh, just a bunch of, and just the whole team. Uh, uh, they asked him why he didn't go to the world baseball classic. And he said, no offense. I'm not trying to offend anybody, but I need, I prefer trying to win a world series than win a world baseball championship like it, it's not it's not the same thing and what Steve Cohen has done to invest in this team I think Brandon Nimmo has taken this contract and taken everything that he's done like he's taken this as serious as anybody else like the fact that he hasn't started spring training till or hasn't been in the game till Saturday I think he's taking this as like as as legitimate as anybody on this team and he's kind of like turning into a new leader. So, yeah, I do think he could pe- play 150 games. And I think he's going to step up and have a bigger season than he's ever had as a New York Met. And we we sort of need him to because the Mets just do not have outfield depth. You know, 
if something happened, and I don't want to minimize an injury to any of the infielders because it would suck, right? It would, it would suck. But in the minor leagues, they potentially would have Brett Beatty. They would potentially have Mark Fientos. They have Ronnie Mauricio. There are options if something, God forbid, happened, knock on wood, to any of these infielders. They do not have depth in the outfield to the point where it will, and I've said this, will involve infielders playing the outfield. Jeff McNeil would play the outfield. Brett Beatty would play the outfield. Ronnie Mauricio should start to learn how to play the outfield. But Nimmo and Marte specifically, and look, Mark Canna too, but I think in a perfect world, Mark Canna becomes a fourth outfielder. And that's where maybe the emergence of Brett Beatty kind of forces him there. But Brandon Nimmo playing 140 games, Starling Marte playing 130 games, I'll be nicer, I'll, I'll be more conservative, is so, so important to this team. Uh, Buck Showalter did an interview with Adam Jones, and what I loved was hearing Buck's baseball ideas. Sometimes I find them annoying because I just want the information on the Mets. Just tell me, does Starling Marte have a concussion, Buck? Just tell me, who's starting opening day? By the way, any update on that? (laughs) I I haven't heard a damn word about who's starting opening day. Maybe Buck's superstitious. He's like, I ain't saying somebody's name just so they can get hurt. I ain't saying a damn thing to like a week before opening day. It's going to be Max Scherzer, by the way. That's that's my prediction. So Buck had a handful of ideas about baseball that he mentioned in this interview with Adam Jones. And we'll give you our thoughts. Do we like Buck's ideas or do we dislike Buck's ideas? Number one, Pete's going to love. I'm telling you right now. Paul, if you're going to love this idea. While he seems to like the pitch clock, he said, why not just shut it off seventh inning? Why not just shut it off in the eighth inning? Like, let's do it for the first part of the game because the pace matters. But when we get to the seventh, eighth, ninth inning, eh, let's just shut it off. So I assume you want to make love to that idea. I'm swimming in the, that idea right now. I love it. I mean, God bless Buck for, for being a real baseball purist. That is the smartest <laughs> idea I've ever heard in my life. Let me just say, as someone who loves the pitch clock, I'm not anti shutting it off at some point in the game. Like, that's fine. Like, I don't know if I'd do it in the seventh inning. I'd probably do it more in the ninth inning. I'd say ninth inning, clock's off. And then you ensure, even though I don't think this will ever happen, but for Pete's sake, uh, I ensure no game will ever end on a walk-off violation. (laughs) So... I'm okay with shutting it off in the ninth inning. Idea number two, this isn't an idea. This is a comment by Buck, and he's he's right, but I want to kind of defend myself on it. In talking about the speed-up rules, not just the pitch clock, but everything in trying to speed this game up, he says, I see a lot of people writing good things about it. Be careful about who loves the speed-up rules. Be careful of the writers and the broadcasters. And I totally get Buck's point. It's a point I've actually made about the 10th inning rule, which is these guys want to go home. You know, sports writers, and a lot of them do a great job, but they want to go home. They're done. They work for five hours. They want to go home. CC Sabathia said it as a baseball player. I don't get paid overtime. He wants to go home. Broadcasters, Howie Rosa said it. They want to go home. So I've always used that argument of who cares if you want to go home against the extra inning rule. Buck brings it up, not against the pitch clock, but you just say, hey, 
be careful about what people say. And he's spot on about it. Like, I don't want to hear someone's opinion because of their selfishness in terms of work. Now, for anyone who's saying, Evan, that's you. It's not me. It's not work. I go to, I go to baseball games. I pay money to go to baseball. I watch plenty of baseball games that I wouldn't even have to watch for work. I love the sport of baseball, genuinely. You so you can't you use that argument against me. You score spring training games. That's right. That is the level of baseball lover you are, okay? Let's be serious here. Yes. So my reasoning for liking the speed-up rules is that I think things have gotten out of hand. I just think things have gotten worse over the last 15 years. Now, I admit that the clock will turn things to a time that I probably never even witnessed. Like, it's going to move at such a pace that it's going to go to like a 1970s level, which I'm not used to. But I, I think that's beautiful. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And that's not because I want to go home. It's because there was just too much downtime in the game. And I think it was bad for the health of the game. And I don't think it was good. So I get Buck's point about be careful about people's opinions and why they have them. All I could tell you if you listen is I'm being genuine. I don't have an ulterior motive for loving the pitch clock. I just think it makes the game better. And I've watched the WBC. I was all over the Columbia-Mexico game, the USA-Great Britain game. I've watched a handful of these WBC games. And there are times, I don't want to say it's overwhelming, but there are times in which it's noticeable, in which you say, damn, wish we could throw that pitch clock in there. I'm not saying it's happening all the time, but it definitely does pop up. And the other thing, too, is you talk about the writers, you talk about the broadcasters. There's also this other side of it, too, where there's a lot of people that just don't like baseball, and they like to put their input in there as well. And like to be like, oh, the game is boring, you got to do something to speed it up. Those people will not watch baseball, even if you change it to five innings and two outs per inning and make it a, an hour and a half game. They're not watching. So I agree. That's the other side of it as well, you know? Yeah, it's similar to when a jackass like me makes a comment about how to make soccer better. You know, I'm not going to watch it, even if you take my dopey rule. I don't like soccer. So why would you care about my idea? And I and I always say that whenever we talk about soccer right around the World Cup. I, I admit it. I say, I don't get this stoppage time. It makes no sense to me. But screw me. You could go fix the stoppage time. I'm never going to start watching soccer. You know, I don't think there's anything you could do that's going to make me watch soccer. So my opinions on how to make it better, why the hell would you ever want to listen to me? Uh, the other idea Buck had, he was talking about the schedule this year, which we have a whole podcast on if you want to go back into the archives of Rico Bronia, how the Mets are playing every team in baseball. They have more balanced the schedule than ever before. So – the Mets will take on teams in their division as opposed to 19 times. They'll take them on 12 times. They'll take on teams outside of their division, but in the league, either six or seven times. And then they'll play interleague games against everybody three times with the exception of the Yankees that they will play four times. So a much more balanced schedule. Buck says it should be even more balanced and that you should face every team the exact same amount of times with his reasoning being, why should you make the playoffs based on just beating up a crappy division? Totally get his point. 
But to do that, you got to get rid of divisions. If you want to have the most balanced schedule ever, you basically have to turn into the NBA where there's an Eastern Conference and there's a Western Conference. And while there are divisions in the NBA, trust me when I tell you, they mean nothing. They used to mean something. They mean absolutely nothing. Like winning your division helps you in the second tiebreaker. So like I give you a quick example. If the Knicks and the Heat were tied at the end of the season, they would go by head-to-head, right? But if head-to-head was tied, then they'd give the Heat the edge if they won their division. Like, okay, great. I mean, it means nothing. Winning an NBA division means absolutely nothing. Winning a baseball division still means something. So to do Buck's idea, you'd have to scrap the divisions. You'd have to say there are 15 teams in the National League. You're going to play every team the same amount of times, and then we're going to rank them one through six, and that's how you make the playoffs. Would you want that, Pete? No, I'm kind of actually bothered that we have to – take away from the divisional games already. Like, I think it's more important. I really do think that it's important to play more divisional games because it's, it's, you want, that's the goal is to win the division, right? Is it important? Isn't that yeah, the idea? I, I, absolutely. But Buck's point's fair when he says, why should you make the playoffs for beating up on a crappy division? And I have an answer to that, by the way. Not the answer Buck gave, but there's an answer to solving his issue. And it's actually what I was hoping MLB was going to do with their mini realignment. I mean, it wasn't really realignment. The playoff change from a year ago uh, with, with the lockout. You know, they obviously changed the playoff format. What I was hoping for was to go back to two divisions, uh, an NL East and NL West, where there are eight teams in each division. Actually, no, it'd be eight and seven, unfortunately. Until we expand. I was thinking about expanding, but you can't. So it's eight and it's seven for now. And automatically, three teams from each division make the playoffs. And so you can have your unbalanced schedule where you're facing your division a lot, but don't worry. It doesn't matter. You're not beating up on them to beat out another division team. You're locked in on three teams in each division. I'd have the second best team play the third best team in the first round of the playoffs. Winner faces the division champion. So the division champion is automatically in the divisional series. The wild card series is a true wild card series with the two wild cards from the NL East playing each other, the two wild cards from the NL West playing each other, and then the winners facing the divisional winner in a best of five divisional series. It actually makes the names make sense. But besides that, besides the playoff format, the reason it works is you're having an even amount of teams from each division make the postseason. Because Buck's idea, it just doesn't work math-wise. Now, if you have every team, like, okay, let's take out the calculator. There are 30 teams in baseball, which means you're playing 29 of them. If you go 162 divided by 29, that's 5.58 games. So basically, you're playing every team six times, which means a team would only come in once. Every single team. The Phillies would come in once just like the Royals would come in once, just like the Brewers would come in once, just like the Angels would come in once. I don't think that's good. Like that I would, I, I, I disagree with Buck because you want your rivals to matter. And they matter sometimes because you're competing for the same thing, but also you're playing them more times. And the more times you play somebody, the more there is to hate them. 
We have a whole podcast that's going to be ded- dedicated to the radical realignment. So I'm going to save my crazy-ass idea for that podcast. But if there is a way to make it not... I don't want to say... Yeah, I, I, I think that it, it's important. The impact, the rivalries... You can't just make it all bland. You can't play everybody the same amount of time. It just makes it boring. So to, to play a team over and over, to have the Marlins be someone that's always a thorn in our side, even though they're crappy half the time, they still find a way to beat us at the worst possible time. It's important. No, I get you. I, I totally get you. I do. I mean, this year, the Mets are going to play the Marlins 13 times. <laughs> you know, it's the. I am so curious because I – I'm trying to be honest about this. I don't know how I'm going to feel about this format until we live it. You know, sometimes I, it's easy to have an opinion on something before it occurs, but then there are certain things where you're like, I don't know. I kind of have to experience it. And then I'll tell you if I hate it or if I love it and playing the Braves 13 times instead of 19 times. I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to love it. Playing every team in major league baseball, a guaranteed three times Am I going to love it? I don't know. I think it's fun from a road trip standpoint, which is completely selfish. But from a baseball standpoint, is it important that the Mets play the Chicago White Sox every single season? I don't know. So so right now, the Mets play teams outside of their division, but in the National League, either six or seven times. That's how it works. So just quickly for a breakdown. They play the Cardinals seven times. They play the Brewers seven times. But the rest of that NL Central, they play six times. The Reds, the Pirates, the Cubs. In the National League West, they play the Diamondbacks seven times. They play the Giants seven times. They play the rest of the division, the Dodgers, the Padres, and the Rockies six times. Only a one-game difference, so it's not huge. And with interleague play, they play everybody three times, except for the Yankees, who they play four times which is not terrible because there was a time, Pete, where the Mets would play the Yankees six times every single year. And the Braves would play the Yankees zero times. And that always drove me nuts. Like, come on, the Mets are going to play the Yankees six freaking times and a team in the division isn't going to see them one time? At least now, the Braves are going to play the Yankees three times. The Mets are going to play the Braves four times. To me, that's... That's not a big, a one game difference, kind of like in league out of division where they're playing the Cardinals seven times, but they're playing the Cubs six times. Not a big, it's negligible. It's not, it's not horrific. So I do like the fact that we're no longer subjugated to having to face the Yankees an absurd amount of times more than other teams in our division. That's fine, but I also don't need to see Oakland every year. You know what I mean? Like, I don't need to see the A's every year. I feel like that, that to me is like, it's not important to, to, to it's, it's kind of more special almost when you see Seattle comes to town once every four or five years or whatever it is. Like, I, I feel like it's, it adds a little, like, like you say, like you like the rivalries and those are not rivalries, but it's nice to kind of have that, like, oh, I have to see, you know, Julio uh, Rodriguez or whatever hop in, you know? Yeah, but but in fairness to that point, like I totally get now feeling that way, but you don't know if in four years the Oakland A's have this emerging young star that we're going to want to see once a year. So I know it's Oakland. We could easily make a joke. Yeah, right. And they'll develop them and trade them in two years. Maybe so, but it's cyclical. So 
right now facing the Kansas City Royals is boring, but in 2016, it would have been like, whoa, World Series rematch. So I think with American League teams, we got to remind ourselves, yeah, there's going to be a bunch of teams that we don't give a crap about watching, but it's cyclical. And we'll do it on our next pod. I, I kept mentioning we'll do a big pod about radical realignment. And the reason we haven't done it yet is because there always seems to be enough Met breaking news throughout the week that are worthy of discussing. So once we get a quiet couple of days, which maybe will happen now, hopefully, because it means no injuries, we'll spend some time on radical realignment. We'll also have uh, something I used to do a lot on the Evan Roberts podcast. That is a Mets versus Yankees bet edition. Me and Ernie Acosta, who used to produce the Midday Show, would every year make Yankees versus Met bets, which you could follow at home and make those bets against your Yankee fan friends. So we'll do that also as we get closer to opening day, which is only a few weeks away. You can email the pod, the Rico B at gmail.com. We appreciate you emailing and interacting with the pod. And obviously, you can tweet at us anytime. Uh, we will be back with another Rico Brony in a couple of days. You can check out Pete Hoffman with Tiki and Tierney. Me and Craig, 2 o'clock on the fan. We appreciate you listening and downloading Rico Brony. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Bronya podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times. <laughs>